Hey everyone, my name's Michael. And I'm Crystal. And this is Surviving Higher Ed. We're two former higher ed professionals turned expatriates. Surviving Higher Ed is your go-to podcast to discuss surviving within higher education or learning ways to transition out. We want to create a space for you to feel seen and heard and maybe even learn a few things along the way. Now, let's dive in. Thank you, Jose, for joining us today. We are super excited to have you here and to share your perspective about working in the field and what you, who you are as a person, essentially. Yes, welcome. Yes. Um, so feel free, Jose, to share as much as you like, just to give the listeners a bit of a snapshot of who you are. Hey, everyone listening. My name is Jose. Um, I've been in higher ed for about six years now, um, working at both public, private institutions across the country um, from the East Coast, now West. Uh, I'm a cat parent, a plant lover, and a photographer. Um, love drag race and obsessed with spoilers so definitely talk to me if you want to know more um and a pretty avid video gamer um who loves nintendo that's yeah. really good Real well quick. something for Real... everybody there yeah because <laughs> crystal and i love plants Plant. are we team willow team okay, willow good. and Nigeria. okay perfect we're in alignment what's your favorite plant i think mostly because my grandmother had them always growing up are like the long viney cocos plants because they're so sturdy they grow everywhere and we've always just had them. And my first plant was a cutting of hers. So um, oh, I've got to keep cool. having it. I love it. We love, we love a good photo. That's beautiful. Crystal and I love plants. So <laughs> yeah. thank you for sharing. I love that you have a very dynamic life from cats to drag race to plants. <laughs> you were made for this podcast. <laughs> you sure were. You sure were. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get into our first question. And it's, you know, however you want to approach it. Other than what you shared, um, tell us about yourself and your journey in higher ed and student affairs. So whenever, wherever you want to start with that. Um, so I attended a large public institution in the Southeast. Um, I'm the first in my family to attend college. The first in my family to even graduate high school. Um, so college and navigating that process was pretty bizarre, confusing, just question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, and I was really fortunate that I received um, a full scholarship to attend my undergrad. Um, and I kind of decided to go mostly because of the money. Um, I had a cousin who graduated college and um, she shared like, save your money for undergrad, spend it in grad school or law school in that next chapter. And that kind of stuck, stuck with me because I always wanted to go to NYU, yeah. um, mostly because I was just like, I want to live my best gossip girl life. Um, but XOXO. I don't XOXO, but I don't have gossip girl money. Um, so attended, um, was part of this program with mentorship, got involved pretty quickly with some various leadership organizations on campus, worked in housing, worked in first year experience. And in my second semester of my first year, I was in my training class to be an RA. And I was like, oh my gosh, this person teaching my class, this is their job. Like they're a grown up with a job and I like this and I want to help people. That was after transitioning from, I attended college to wanting to go to law school. And I'm not a very competitive person. Like if someone just cares more about it, I'm like, you do it. Like, and everyone in my poli-sci pre-law classes, like woke up at 8 a.m., read the current events. And I was like, I just woke up. Oh like, no, mama. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're doing the most. And so like, I literally just rolled out of bed. And so I knew I wanted to switch, switch to more of like a social work nonprofit major. And kind of that's where my journey began in higher ed was my second semester of college and said, nice. I want to join this field. And I knew that there weren't necessarily like internships or kind of formalized processes like other industries. And so I used all of my campus involvement to gain experience, which led to me burning out very often and in some pretty intense ways. I held a lot of leadership positions on campus and towards my junior year is when 
I kind of saw the ugly side of higher ed because I got very involved very quickly and got picked to do a lot of things or Mm -hmm. poached to do a lot of Uh. things to take on a lot of labor, especially emotional labor, being a token for many experiences and being denied an experience that I thought I deserve really shifted the perspective because I was like, this doesn't make sense. Not because I think I'm the bomb.com, which I do, but like, it just like, I was like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like the feedback you're giving me, like, yeah. I can tell you made that up just just to justify Ooh. not picking me. And so I knew that if I decided to go into higher ed, I didn't want to be that kind of practitioner. I wanted to focus on how do I remove myself? How do I remove my ego? How do I stop being the star student leader who couldn't figure out a life afterwards? And so I wanted to be someone who was going to support students from marginalized backgrounds. I took a gap year because of that mental health concern. And like, it was the first time I really struggled with anxiety and started seeking therapy. And so that gap year was really healing and reprioritized how I looked yeah. at grad school. I always compared it as like, therapy. my yes, <laughs> therapy because undergrad, I like was barely hanging on, like was not, was not doing it. Like I looked back at my transcripts and I was like, it was truly just vibes and Starbucks. And <laughs> this is like, this is like Shangela coming back. Not like Jujubee coming yeah. back. This is like no, Shangela, no. like Shangela's makeup was a little messy. She got her hair did second season and third time around like she should have won all stars that season if, if you want to talk about that we'll talk about that later but yeah you're giving me shangela vibes <laughs> yes i got a great uh sort of the box like she said in her intro <laughs> yeah um and so i and i took it seriously because i realized that i did yeah. love learning i think i spent a lot of my youth thinking I wasn't smart enough because I went to school typically being the only Latinx person in my classes being told like I'm here to meet a quota and realizing no I do love education and I am good at this so I took it very seriously going back to grad school yeah so that's kind of been my journey I've worked in both public and private schools in 2020 2019 2020 2020 I lost my job quote unquote is the reason why but I'm sure there are other reasons that weren't shared and it made me really think do I want to stay in this field Mm -hmm. and I looked and applied to jobs both in and out of higher ed especially that summer it was really hard to find employment and so did a lot of great self-reflection and that's kind of been my journey so far love that I like that you shared that you are the first in your family to go to college crystal and has a big first-gen background that was part of what they used to do so that's really cool and I also resonated with your detail that you mentioned about saving like your money for grad school because you mentioned you were Latinx and I identify as Latinx too and I don't know if it's just a Latinx thing but like that was the same thing I got too was like a they didn't want me to leave I tried and then then I did community college which was fine and then I did undergrad at my hometown which was fine and then I was like hey I'm leaving now because I really want to go to San Francisco so like that's interesting that you say that because I had a similar experience but they were like just wait just wait so I resonate with you on that so thanks for sharing that detail yeah I think well and I think it's also interesting to kind of relating back to like what you're saying too about having to reframe your identity outside of your achievements and working in higher ed, right? Because like what Michael was saying, like a lot of my experience was working in, like that was the program credential first gen. And it was an interesting component because I had never heard of that, right? Until later, I'm like, oh, wait, that's a thing. But then it's like, you go through the cycles of it feeling very validating. But then it was like, oh, wait, this is a big, huge like identity that I'm supposed to like take on in higher ed and like yeah. what does that mean and I feel like especially the work that I was doing in that field it was interesting to kind of have to sort of separate myself once I left because I was like oh outside of this nobody cares that I'm like a first gen college student <laughs> like it doesn't like it's not as relevant outside and mm-hmm. which I think then it forced me to have to kind of kind of okay how does this incorporate into my identity and who am I and mm-hmm. it's like outside of these higher ed terms 
that, you know, kind of formulated it in my accomplishments in there and all that. So I'm not sure if that was part of your experience and like reformulating your identity kind of without these terms and ideals that are so just more specific to higher ed. Yeah, I think I haven't had the opportunity to work outside of higher ed yet, but I'm learning as I attend new universities and industry, like speaking with folks in more industry is that it's kind of a strange thing that we, it sometimes it feels like a, an MLM working in higher ed because we're selling degrees to work at the institution to get another degree to still, (laughs) but knowing that like outside of higher ed and my friends who've left higher ed, they're working with folks who've worked for 20 years without a bachelor's degree, without a master's degree and are killing it and getting amazing salaries and amazing benefits. And so that like first gen identity at first was like, wow, this is empowering. I feel seen and valid. Then I felt ashamed. Then I felt like it was holding me back of like realizing I didn't have these experiences. And then it was seeing on the other side, like in this academic space, it's seen sometimes as a um, a negative thing or a barrier. Whereas outside of higher ed, like there are folks getting jobs without like yeah yeah yeah. totally common it was such a it was such a different like it was such an experience between like my sister and I who obviously would also be first gen and and didn't get her bachelor's or so it's like you have me and like in this higher ed working with first gen trying to like almost in a sense promote college and all about Mm -hmm. this and then my sister who ended up like getting a really great job and at some point was making more money than I was working in higher ed um, mm-hmm. and it was really hard to kind of reconcile that, like you're saying, like, where I was like, oh, she's not even, mm-hmm. she's not even really privy to this, this identity and like what it means to her and do she's just, you know, making her big money moves and doing her thing. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm over here feeling like, wait, I have to kind of process like this, like, cause I have so much pride in it, but like, also I have to be aware of how much of that is kind of like just the environment that I'm in, in mm-hmm. that sense too. Agreed. I have a similar experience with my sister. I love that she's making as much as I did with my first job out of grad school. Because I'm like, you're getting paid and you didn't have to go to six years of schooling and deal with all the dramatics that I did. Like Mm -hmm. you were just getting paid what you need to to survive. And so, um, but it's wild to think like, in my head, I was like, oh, you need all these degrees to get an education. And I wish someone would have told me like, no, you can, there's other routes. Um, But absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Um, I know you had mentioned that you had gone from um, like private to public mm-hmm. institutions. Can you describe like what, what was your experience with that transition? So I attended a public undergrad and graduate school. And so it was very interesting switching to a private school because the state that I worked, I, it was all the same state, isn't well-funded in education and the administration there currently is trying to constantly defund higher education because they view it as liberal incubators when I'm mm-hmm. like, Let's, let's talk about that because as a student who went there, it's, that's not true. And so going to a private school was some parts were relieving, some parts weren't. Some parts were relieving yeah. in that like you didn't necessarily have, fall under the same state metrics or the competition yeah. between other state schools fighting for one sum of money kind of thing. Yeah. And so we were able to purchase things for events or you had funding for programming and hearing like that there were certain campus partners who were going to like Best Buy and buying like multiple TVs and laptops and iPads to do a giveaway. And I was like, you can, you can do that. Like we like, we just had a free t-shirt where when I worked at the public schools that we could give away. Oh, those free um, t-shirts. And then I think kind of like the underbelly of that was recognizing like the privilege that comes with that, that most of the students that attended school were paying everything out of pocket. Like there were, family members of students who at orientations, quote unquote, said, can I pay for my two students tuition in full right now for the next four years? Yeah, That would have been 
over a quarter of a million dollars to just pay right there. And that was a huge culture shock coming from someone who grew up in Section 8 housing, who grew up in food stamps, to just know that people had that money. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, it just doesn't compute. Um, Because even the richest kids at the schools I attended were considered poor compared to them. And so it was kind of hard. And because of that, there was a level of, while we didn't perform to the state necessarily, we performed to the family members and their checkbooks. And so there was a lot of conversations with parents coming in, whereas prior I could say, actually, your student, this is just a conversation between us. Whereas now they're paying my salary. Like they, they kind of are allowed to come. So that was pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty hard at times. And then additionally, I could tell I didn't fit in. Like I am not someone that cares about name and status and because of the private institution, like that was a huge badge of honor for them. And the people who work there, especially people who grew up near the, near the area, they viewed it such as like a prestigious thing that for me, I was like, it's another job, but people who got to work, they were like, I've been trying to work there the past 10 years. And I was like, Ooh, I just kind of stumbled in this. And so yeah. it was hard at times because they could tell I didn't care as much um, about mm. the branding, the name, all of that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I did appreciate getting like, a new computer instead of like a 2007 Dell um, when oh. I started working that barely booted up. Um, so that was kind of nice. And like, if I needed things, like there was pens and markers and actual supplies, as opposed to like, sometimes I felt like how they imagine public school teachers having to use your own money to pay for things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know in grad school, like if I needed anything for my office, I would have to pay for it myself. Oh, and having like professional development dollars. Like I got to go to like two conferences in my time there. And so, oh, yeah. So like money wasn't necessarily an issue, yeah. but what came with that was a kind of like higher expectation of like yeah. performance of everything has to be prim and proper. You always have to look like super poised because at any moment a donor could come and really shift the game for some of these folks. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, that's true. Absolutely. I'm sure Crystal can speak to that mind, like oh. that, that <laughs> environment more than I can. Oh yeah, 100% since that was like, you're, you're just hitting all the notes. I was like, absolutely. There was a lot of, especially when I got into pro- program coordination, it was every role, which I think is kind of interesting as an admin, as an advisor, plus as a, as a coordinator, I, it was like, not, there was not any experience that was isolated from dealing with donors and yeah. having to be on and being ever present that like almost this customer, like the customer's always right kind of mentality when it came mm-hmm. to working with a lot of the parent. And I think I, I remember, cause you know, we, we had worked in a advising together and a lot of those huge portions of our meetings sometimes dedicated to how do we cope with all these parents, which is, oh my gosh. which I think was so, so, so interesting in several different layers. Like one, as first gen, where I was like, my parents didn't get involved in any of that. Like I had, a, I remember going by myself to this meeting, like when we yeah. I, and just trusting what I was told to like enroll in versus having now spending all this time as a, you know, uh, an employee trying to navigate like, okay, well, these parents are calling, trying about their kids and roll this and do that. And it's like, that shit was weird. Like, I'm sorry, but to be (laughs) be candid, like that shit was weird. Like looking back at it. Yeah. It was just so, so yeah, absolutely. What you're saying there was like, I I guess I know that I don't have the public um, experience and kind of realizing some of the limited resources, uh, but like, I definitely saw like, yeah, in private, like we had it, but it also depended on like, it was, it was also like this kind of hierarchy of like, well, who's bringing in the most money and has the most donors and they get the most money. So it's like aspects of that where, you know, it was like, okay, like the business school obviously is going to be thriving 
because that's yeah. super connected to donors but like the idea of like oh like maybe uh like the college of ed or maybe like another school that's not necessarily rooted in yeah. money is is not going to have as much resources um as you know their counterpart and like how that how that works and how and salaries and all these different things so i i definitely relate with your sales it's like oh yep checkbox checkbox good to know that that's like consistent across a lot of private schools <laughs> i love that yeah that's definitely a good detail for people who are not familiar with the different uh systems to like reflect on and also like if they're looking to make that move like while those things aren't like a big, like a big indicator of if you're going to be successful in your job, sometimes those perks make it nice to, I'll say, I'll say like persist or stay there, knowing that you have access to certain resources compared to other schools. So this is a good segue into our next question, because you are a current professional and you are in an environment where people are leaving, finding better jobs, or they're getting let go because of lack of funding, quote unquote, like you mentioned. And we have people who are on the fence and people who want to enter the field, but they're also seeing all this because, you know, they're not in it like like I was and Crystal was and like you are now. So how do you manage and maintain like that confidence and just like that willingness to continue doing the work when all of this is happening around yeah. you? Especially too, like also considering the perspective of a survivor that's persisting there. Because I think that's also another thing. Like we've had it, like I know that was part of my role too. There was like yeah. as the retention rate was low and kind of having to stay there during that time too, like offers its own kind of, you know, um, experience. Yeah, my first experience with kind of this transitional conversation was in grad school. The summer I was coming back from my first year after my internship, my supervisor left for a new opportunity. And I love that for her. She's still one of my mentors. I love that she left and she helped me see that I can choose myself. She was the first person to show me that. Yeah. Following those next couple months in my second year of grad school, 22 people in the division left in all various levels from directors, associate directors, down to coordinators, and almost all of them cited the environment. And this is while you were in grad school? This is while I was in grad school. So this is me. This is before Ms. Rona. This is before Ms. Rona. So this is me trying to enter this field that I said I wanted to, and then just seeing people leave. And thinking like, did I make a mistake doing this? And I think it was, and I tried to prepare myself. I remember when my boss was leaving, I was like telling my new boss, my interim boss, like, what can I do to like take things on? Do I need to work 25 hours, 30 hours a week? I Mm. want to make sure I'm compensated. Like, and they're like, your job won't change. LOL, just kidding. My job changed (laughs) and I was doing more work, not being compensated because we also lost student staff as well because they cut budgets. So I went from a team of 10 to four people, um, me being interim fake coordinator because they, they wouldn't let me be the interim coordinator. Um, wow. And so I had to, that was probably the moment where I had to trust myself the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in higher ed, we love a good strengths quest. Um, yeah. And so one of my strengths is self-assurance and command. And so like, I'm pretty hard to like shake. Like I, I know what I'm good at. I know how to speak up. Yeah. But even in that moment, it really rocked me. I was like, what is going on? And I was like, I'm not going to quit. Like, I'm halfway there. Like, I'm, I, I already took out the loans. I need to, like, get this yeah. degree. Yeah. I wish I would have questioned it more because realizing you're a tree, you're not a tree. You can leave at any time. You don't have uh-huh. your roots deep down. But I think I had to realize, like, I'm doing this for me. And when it's my turn to leave, like, you can't stay. You can't, like, have this, like, it's going to be me who fixes this. As I remember students saying like, Jose, why are you leaving? Why can't you apply 
for jobs here. And when I was graduating, why can't you apply for jobs here and help fix and make a change? And I remember telling them, I was like, one, I hope me leaving shows you, you have to choose yourself no matter what. And Mm -hmm. two, you don't need me to fix this. I am one person. I can't fix this. What we need is anti-racism. What we need is anti-capitalism. What we need is for like heterosexism to disappear because those are the issues at hand. And I can't fix those. Mm -hmm. And the people in charge, like there's only so much fighting I could do because at one office, they had had 100% staff turnover almost three years in a row. And the reason it wasn't 100% because there was one common denominator and it was the director. And I was like, I can't fight, like I can't fight that person. Always the director. (laughs) I'm like triggered right now. (laughs) I, I, like I can't fight 20 years of history. Like, absolutely, absolutely. Like, but I think higher ed, something I think often about is how we poach folks from historically marginalized backgrounds. And almost consistently, when I talk to colleagues and friends in this field, they always were told, people need you. Students need someone like you in this Mm -hmm. to help fix this. And you start taking that on, you internalize it. You're like, people need me. I can fix it. If it wasn't fixed already, it's not going to be fixed with you. And that's a very harsh reality. (laughs) That's why people get doctorates. That's why they get doctorates. Because most of them, at least that's why. And I was that same same person that said the same thing. Like, oh yeah, I need to get a doctorate because there's not a lot of people that look like me. But then I'm like, Mm -hmm. but mm, that's not my, not my monkeys, not my mess. No. Not my monkeys, not my mess. Like it is not, but it's a really good guilt tactic to keep people. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's a really great way to keep people impoverished. And I think about all the time, like how we recruit folks and tell people like people from historically marginalized backgrounds, especially low income folks, people of color deserve higher paying jobs. But then they recruit us for jobs paying $30,000. And I'm like, this doesn't compute. But I know that's a sidetrack. I know I was when in 2020, I lost my job and I was one of like only two in my office who were removed. I think I kind of felt a sense of relief. I was lucky Mm -hmm. that financially I was living with my partner like I could afford like to make buy and got unemployment and stuff that's good but I think I felt even more sorry for the folks who were there because I was oh, like yeah. I would be scared to think if Jose got cut when is it my turn do I have to yeah. overperform yeah. now do I have to create 10 more initiatives do I have to be on from 7 a.m to 7 p.m and I remember speaking to some of my former colleagues and they said that's exactly what it was it felt like yeah. anybody was at the chopping block and they held that over them of well, we have to perform with. we have to like prove your worth yeah. and it's like I'm already worthy to not be unemployed like why is that? Why is my worthiness contingent of me creating 10 more initiatives? And so it honestly gave me a sense of relief and like, it really solidified for me. Like it, it truly launched me into like my villain origin story. I was like, they quickly removed me and I know I'm nothing to these companies. And now these companies don't, I'm nothing to them. like, and vice versa. Like if I need to leave, I'm always going to prioritize myself, my own well being, my own mental health. And I can leave at any time the same way that they made me go at any time. And so I think that's been a big piece and like constantly advocating, like, I'm not going to take on more work. I'm not going to take on these opportunities. And like, I know I'm in a very privileged state to say that as non-Black person of color, as a more like cis presenting queer person, like, I know I have that privilege to do some of those things. Uh, But I recognize not everyone gets to be as vocal as I can in those moments. Um, But it's hard because I see it all the time, especially with friends across the country at various universities having to be COVID responders. And I'm like, you were hired to be a conduct officer. Why are you transporting kids to the hospital now? Oh, yeah. yeah. Risking yeah. your own life because they wanted a party. Like, 
all hands on deck mentality. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I right? love your theme of agency too. Like this kind of reminding ourselves that like, yeah, we have to do this. We can, and I know that's, you're saying like, like you were saying, there's other challenges that we have to think about, but at the end of the day, like you can truly, you can truly do whatever you want. Granted, everyone's circumstances are different. So I'm glad that you're honest about that because a lot of people need to be reminded about that. Yeah. Like looking like what's in your control. And like, I think it's like spoken, like someone that truly did the work, like in therapy to really kind of get to that point to realize like, oh, I have agency in whatever way that works for somebody to like, what can I do for myself? And how can I separate myself from kind of like these toxic messages and like internalization of like a lot yeah. of this culture right and and these things which I think is really just prevalent in in there and that's why I always clarify too like for people that want to obviously persist in the field and want to like l- and love what they do the idea of realizing well if you're not happy in this in aspects of it like identify yeah. what's toxic and identify what you can do about it for yourself and not necessarily as a system, because I totally relate into that too. That's like Michael, that like this idea of again, like, right, oh, I need to be here for them. And this is what, and I'm right, like, I'm writing the wrongs of like my experience. And this is what the system needs. And, and realizing at the end of the day, like the system really didn't care if I was there or not. They, they still don't. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't like all the, all the, like by breaking my back over the different things and didn't actually change much at all, if anything you know, which it's like, and realizing that that was okay. Like, that's not, it wasn't my purpose. My purpose could be something completely outside, right? Like, you know, your purpose could be providing a loving home for your cat. <laughs> like, Yeah, that's fine. So, you know, like it doesn't have to be necessarily like finding it in this, uh, in a culture that necessarily um, is, can be very abusive. Yeah. yeah, 100%. And I definitely resonate and I would retweet like, what you mentioned of like what's in your sphere of control like I think oftentimes like we are pushed to think of it in a systemic way of I have to fix these issues across campus and I have to work on this and we kind of take on each other's baggage and we start crumerating with each other across campus of all the horrible things and we start speaking up about other people's issues of well that office is going through those things and if there is like one thing I wish I could tell my grad school self is that that's not your problem to fix like mm-hmm. it, because now yeah. you're putting your neck on the line for people who won't like yes. who aren't going to like speak up because now like I've had it happen where I'm saying that like this is an issue and like I know this is impacting them and they'll turn around to that person and say is this an issue and they'll say no so now I look like a clown with my clown uh-huh. nose and my clown shoes and oh. like I'm stressing myself up I have anxiety I'm in therapy now yeah and I realized like, what can you control? And like, yes, you can make an Im- individual impact on students. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. It's why we're here. The systemic yeah. one, that's not like going no. to change. Yeah. Like the, but the student impact, great. You can do that anywhere. And like, don't let that dull. Like if you still want to work in higher ed, like I'm still here. I love my student interaction. It's great. Yeah. And I know when it's time for me to go, like, it'll be time for me to go. Um, and yeah. it's okay that I choose that too, but it's very cliche, but like, you can't pour from an empty cup. Like you no, can't no, keep putting true. yourself out no, there. And... Absolutely not. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Like what, and find like what fills your cup outside of that. And like, kind of on that, what's like on that note, like what are some ways that you think like current professionals can, um, better take care of themselves? Yeah. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I got from my first grad school supervisor was delete your email from your phone immediately. <laughs> immediately they're like you are not crisis management you're not an avp and you're not in housing 
they do not, we work with student organizations. Like if you, if they're contacting you at midnight, one, it's not an emergency. Two, that's when students are up. And like, I think our field like gets this like yeah. urgency of like, I got an email from a student at 1 a.m. Yeah, do you yeah. not remember being an undergrad, oh being God. up at 1 a.m.? Like, <laughs> that's just when you're like active and alive and doing things. Like, yeah. and I think that's a huge way to start taking care of yourself. And um, another good piece of advice I got from one of my favorite professors from grad school is that life doesn't freeze while you're in this classroom, at your job, mm-hmm. at your program. Like, remember those things that fill you up outside of work. Remember that you have a yeah. family. Remember you have friends, a community. Mm-hmm. Because I think about how many people, like, I, I wish I had a better phrase for this, but like, shit where they eat in yeah, higher ed. That, and that yeah. we put all of our community and friendships and all of that in one space and in our workspace. And we oh, yeah. think about how many people we know. We've seen horrible fallouts in offices because like it got messy. And so like how, like at five o'clock I close my computer for work and I'm on my merry way. Like, and I go to my partner, I go to my cat and go call my grandma back home. Like right now I'm still fairly new to the Colorado area. So like, I don't have like a pocket of like things I do. I'm also a huge homebody. So like at five o'clock, I'm like, I want to go to my comfy bed. (laughs) I don't really want to see folks, but um, how... turns to antisocial. Yeah, yeah. After you, five, you deal with enough people the day, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I filled out my extrovert bucket at work, and now it's time for me to decompress. And so, yeah. but I think it's really doing that in like that work, and like I think therapy truly was the most healing part of this experience for me. Um, both when I was an undergrad, and then um, I stopped when I went to grad school, and when I lost my job, I started going to therapy again, and it really helped me realize like. I'm not the reason this stuff happened. I'm not the reason that I experienced these things. I'm not the reason that I experienced harm or that people harmed me. Yeah. Because a lot of times it feels almost like we blame the person being harmed in higher ed. Yeah. And the coordinators, the entry-level staff who are kind of being taking the brunt of this experiences and real detaching yourself from that. And also detaching yourself from like your job. Like you can, this can be your passion. This can be everything you want to give your life to. And it's not who you are it's a job. Yeah. Yeah, like you're definitely. not like, I think about all the times, like when I was an undergrad, like, cause Instagram was like, kind of like really coming about when I was an undergrad, like my little bio had my like involvement in it. And I was oh, like, oh my God. XYZ position. And I'm like, who did you think you were? Like, why did I you was think that you girl. were a celebrity? I was that girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be honest. I was that girl. And <laughs> <laughs> like, I wish I could talk to my undergrad self and be like, who were you outside of the little name tags that you have like what are the things that you did on campus (laughs) that you enjoyed what were the moments of like there's this tiktoker named novella she was a youtuber before um and she talks about like pockets of peace like what were those things that you'll hold on to um from college or just your job or outside of life and i think like i've learned to prioritize myself especially because i've had a lot of health conditions stem from the harm i experienced in higher ed in grad school i lost two teeth um, because of the stress I was under and grinding oh my, my teeth, gosh, I yeah. went to the emergency room because I was, thought I was having a heart attack. Oh um, so and sorry. I and I remember telling one of the staff members, I was like, I started developing this like really intense pain in my chest, and he was like, Yeah, that usually happens after a year of working here. And I was like, 
What? <laughs> the goopery. Like, See, yeah, let's just normalize like this toxic culture. Let's just normalize like these issues that uh, you know That's it's impacting okay. others with. Like not at all. Oh my god! Literally after I left these environments, my blood pressure went down. I stopped having tummy aches. I stopped having headaches after work. Like I wake up and I'm like excited because I'm not surrounded by that harm. And yeah, so good. we don't recognize yeah. how much our body holds. And right now I'm reading the book, um, The Body Keeps the Score. Oh, yes, and I know we it, love that. I know that. it's going to drag me yeah. when I get further into it. But um, I think about how much practitioners hold on to from the students, yeah. from the colleagues, from upper management, and realizing like you can't hold on to all of that. So, yeah. I don't know if that answered the question. That. You did. Oh, no, it did. And then some. We it love it. It was beautiful. Thank you. And this is, uh, if you're listening, take Essay Pro out of your Instagram bio now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Thank you. Like, I, I learned that, too. We had a guest on before you who said, you are not student affairs. You don't work in, like, student affairs is not your identity. You work in student affairs because of who you are. And you can bring that anywhere. And and that I think you've learned that. So I'm glad that you are practicing that and I can tell you are truly a one a person who practices what they preach 100%. You, love you briefly mentioned this, but if you want to expand on it really briefly, what would you do differently during your time in higher ed? And your time in higher ed can be whatever you envision that, but I know you mentioned grad school you, so you can expand upon that or another aspect of your uh, higher ed identity. I think I would take it in three chapters. I would think right. about undergrad and I would first like, tell undergrad Jose, like you are more than worthy. Cause I think so much of my experience was like seeking validation, especially Mm -hmm. from these really toxic systems and like these identities as I think it was beyond imposter syndrome because Mm -hmm. like being a first gen low income, queer, fat Latinx person in a predominantly white institution. Like Mm -hmm. I thought like I needed to prove my worth. I needed to be so busy and do all these things to show that I deserved my spot. Because oh, yeah. I didn't think I didn't think I deserved going to the school. Yeah. And I wish I could tell undergrad me, like, you are more than qualified. And I promise you, most of the people you're around are mediocre and you are running laps around them. Um, I think the second piece of advice I would give to my grad school self is girl, look at other programs. Like, look <laughs> at a master's in counseling, look at oh an MBA, God, yes. look at like all kinds of other programs because while I enjoyed my degree and it was like, I don't regret it because it was what I needed at the time. And like, yeah. you weren't going to yeah, convince absolutely. me otherwise. Yeah. No, and, but I wish I would have, cause I was torn between like a counseling degree and a higher ed degree. And I wish I would have went the counseling route yeah. and then maybe done like a GA world or something. So that I always knew I could fall into another field. I think professionally, I wish I would have not taken everyone else's baggage, mm-hmm. um, especially because yeah. people leave it. And it's kind of like when you're a student in the library and someone says, can you watch my like laptop while I go to the bathroom? Yep. But they never came back for it. And so now you're sitting with everybody's baggage at the airport, like you're struggling and you're not taking care of yourself and recognizing like you can't fight everyone's battles. You can fight your own and that might help illuminate the way for other people, Yeah. but you can't fight everyone's battle together. Yeah. Like you have to truly speak from an eye. And I remember learning that and it was truly more effective when advocating for myself of saying like, I'm experiencing this and this is how I'm experiencing it by X, Y, Z person or X, Y, Z thing. Absolutely. Yeah. As opposed to saying like, it's this big thing because at the end of the day, people in power don't care about the big thing. Like they are scared of a lawsuit and scared of, and their name having a bad reputation. If one person kind of that individual, they don't have to care if you say as a Latinx person, they're going to like, girl, whatever. 
but yeah. if you can experience say from like I experienced this because I'm Latinx um that's been super powerful um and also also giving me power and reclaiming that I'm not my harm like I'm like just because I'm Latinx doesn't mean that is a harmful identity like yeah. I'm harmed because of racism I'm yes. harmed because of I these larger that. systems oh, um absolutely yeah. I I feel like I'm so glad you said a lot of those things because I feel like not not to get too therapeutic in the sense it's just my nature in the sense but I think I think it's important what you're saying from beginning to end that a lot of the times especially with like these marginalized populations that they tend to seek out to right really be of service for these students and change the 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 quote-unquote system um it really stems from these aspects of insecurity and, 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 and the need for validation. Cause I definitely resonate with that as well. And I feel like that's been a lot of the students I worked with and a lot of other professionals that, you know, we've spoken to the idea that a lot of times it stems from this, right. We, we, we overproduce in a sense because to validate that or like, and even in myself, even though I didn't, I was doing things academically, not necessarily because I was insecure about getting involved because I felt like I just didn't look like everybody else mm-hmm. and I wasn't everybody else I couldn't relate um and it, obviously we had the similar path but it was all same rooted in those issues and yep. and then I love how when you bring it back I I think it's important to point these out too because sometimes these emotional wounds that we have and that we carry and not not realize that they're there are what then kind of manam- manifest themselves in these other areas so like the idea of when we take on other people's baggage, right? What we're really doing is we're just minimizing our own needs. And we're essentially saying that other people's issues and baggage are have more priority and more weight than our own. Mm-hmm. And so when we then do the work to kind of reflect on, no, I'm, I'm worthy of advocating for myself, not behind everybody else and realizing the impact that systems have on us and owning that, then we kind of, that's where we start to find the empowerment and the ability for us to really kind of grow and seek that growth and kind of shine in our own light and find our agency. And so I really love kind of like what you're saying. And I wanted to make sure for people that out that are listening, that also may resonate with a lot of your experiences, kind of bringing that point in, if they might not have had the opportunity to maybe have that kind of growth in, in therapy to kind of point out, maybe some of these, these might be themes that deserve a little bit more reflection in their own lives um, that could really kind of be very insightful and bring some clarity to maybe what they've been experiencing. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'd also tell myself like, just you're not crazy. Like yeah, yeah. what you're seeing <laughs> yeah. is like, that's when you think about, cause yeah. oftentimes you learn about systems of harm and like how oppression is actualized. Yeah. One way it's actualized is by making you think like, like gaslighting you into yes, gaslighting. that mm-hmm. you're, you're the one making this up. You're the one making a bigger deal. You're dramatic, you're X, Y, Z thing. And like, when you get to take a pause and talk to someone outside of that experience, they're like, are you serious? Bonkers. Like, that, that's what? Like, I, I remember the first time I told someone, like I had a full day interview for a job. They were like, <laughs> like for wh- why? Yeah. Like my job was an hour interview. And I was like, and I, I remember that first time I was like, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm interviewing for eight hours. Like, and it made me realize like, am I the crazy one? And I'm like, no, like it makes no sense. I'm eight hours plus the travel for a job paying me forty thousand dollars a year. That makes no sense. Yeah, this yeah. is that's cuckoo wild. for cocoa Absolutely. pups. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, um, I appreciate everything that you shared, and I see a lot of my experience in what you shared. Yes. So 
I am happy that I, you know, wasn't the only one. Cause I think that's what a lot of this is about is like, you're saying like, am I crazy? But no, like we're no. not. That's why everybody is talking about it now. And that's why I did this TikTok thing. Cause I was like, I ain't the only one feeling this way. And it's turned into like this. And so I'm, I'm glad that you can be that voice for people who are still in the field, but you are really just like focusing on you. And if so many more people yeah. did that, I think they would have a potentially a better experience, but also just learn that like, it's not your shit to fix at the end of the day. No. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I've learned and, in a lot of aspects of life, not just work, personal life too. It's yes. not your shit to fix with other things and that will get you far. And yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and you're not alone in this. Like there are 20,000 yeah. people yes. on the expats Facebook group. Like oh, there man. are thousands of people who are experiencing similar things and yeah the extent varies like on a like a scale of like reasons why people are leaving but like your reason is valid whether it's you had a great work environment but you're not being paid enough like we're yeah. gaslit into being told like you should do what like your heart wants like my heart wants money like i want to pay my rent like yeah. you understand how expensive yeah. things are yes. my cat's a material girl she likes I, nice things oh my god i know like, i work I, so my dogs could have a good life exactly <laughs> so i could buy more plants exactly <laughs> love it we have a question that we received from one of our Google forms, and we just want to take a few minutes just to go through that. So for the purpose of anonymity, we're going to name this person Liz. And we kind of talked about this, and Crystal and I obviously aren't in the field anymore, but we could share just real quickly about what kept us. Um, but this person asked Liz, what keeps you going and persisting in higher ed and student affairs? And I'll kick it off just really quickly just by saying, I... I mean, obviously it was the students, but it was more so like the the growth part of it. Like I didn't stay because of the students. It was just like seeing them leave and then like, okay, let's see what other batches come in, but also the opportunity to be innovative. And I left because the innovativeness was also like pushed back aside from other things, but the opportunity to be innovative and kind of like just do things differently, like do things differently than these boomers were doing. And like, I said, I was told no so much. And then when COVID hit, that's when I was told yes. So I was like, I've been telling y'all we needed to do these virtual workshops already. So I wanted to stay and be innovative and just change the game and how our office did things and like be a leader. And like, I worked in student activities and student orgs too. So like, I wanted to be a leader in that arena and just kind of help our students out and not force them to come and meet us for a signature or for something so like ridiculous that can be handled online. So the opportunity to be innovative is there. Um, granted, you might get pushback, but that's what really kept me. It was just creativity and just putting a bit of my element, like what myself into the work and providing students with additional opportunities. I, I've been trying to think like what's truly keeping me and a couple of things kind of rise to the top. One, truthfully, it's what I know how to do. And I think that's super valid yeah. to acknowledge for Absolutely. people that, it feels safe, like yeah. career-wise, like you you know the landscape, you know how to do it. You're probably good at it. And that's why you are tasked with more things to do. Um, so that's one reason because I was offered, when I was offered my current role, I was offered a role outside of higher ed, literally within hours apart. Wow. And mm. I had never received more than one job offer. So I was like, what is going on? And I had a couple of decisions to make in that. And I realized after taking, I was unemployed for eight months. And so- I knew I wanted to do something. I didn't want to jump out just yet. I wanted to do something yeah. I knew how to do. I can kind of heal my wounds, focus on my mental health, do something that was going to be okay. 
but I was really selective in the place I worked and made sure that I kind of surveyed the environment and knew that it could be temporary because we know things can shift at any time. So that was kind of the, the main reason was it was comfortable. It was safe. I knew what to do. Another area that I like is like, I'm a pretty big nerd. I love researching things. I love my number one strength is context. I love looking at the past and I get to do that in my work. I get to do that in higher ed. I get to do that being in a college setting. And so, um, Whereas I know sometimes in other industries, it's all about forward thinking in the future, um, which is not somewhere I would, thinking about the future makes me anxious, but looking at the past gives me clarity. And so um, I think I get to do that a lot in my work. Um, And in the sector sector of uh, like higher education I'm in, um, I get to be essentially a cheerleader working in career services. And I I think I've said all my strengths now, but my, one of my other strengths is maximizer. And I love, (laughs) helping people like see how amazing they are. And so, um, and seeing that they can choose what they want, how do we get you there? And so like every day, like I don't leave drained and I don't work in a high crisis environment. And so it's very manageable to do like, there's, there, there are no career crisis, like um, that require you to be (laughs) on at midnight. Um, Cause I was an RA for three years. and like that quickly (laughs) got, that got boring very quickly. Um, Um, Yep waking up at 3 a.m. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that's what keeps me going. And, um, but I think I would challenge people to move beyond the students of keeping you there mm-hmm. of like, because they will always be students somewhere. They will always be people that you can help. Like you have to choose yourself. Cause at the end of the day, those, the goal of you working there is to get those students out. And so, you're always going to be stuck in a cycle of students being there. When's the right time to leave? Like, I want to see these students graduate. Like you can see them graduate from your remote job that you get after this role. Like you could probably actually go to their graduation because you won't be working it. Um, You can cheer them on from the audience. Um, And so I would say that's what keeps me. And I I try to keep them to more self reasons as opposed to like external, like I'm staying for this person or this thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it comes back to a lot of the times that work that you do that's that feels very gratifying and and what you know and what you enjoy. I think that for me it was it was definitely that. I really I loved what I did with the students. Um it and I think in in a way it was so personal because my my experience was filled with like not really any mentors or any kind of role models or individuals that like were like me and I think for me it was such I was such an honor to be able to kind of really represent that for a lot of these students and really support them and get to know them and I think and obviously being a therapist it was such like a it it tapped into a lot of that instinctual nature of really hearing their stories and supporting them and being honest with them and helping them grow um, and feel confident in themselves in a way that I really wish that I would have been able to have felt um, you know, during my undergrad experience. And so I think that that for me is what really kept me going. It was because at the end of the day, it not it was like a lot of the stuff that I thought a lot of relationships with people like the like connection to the institute, like all that stuff that I thought was super important and keeping me there all went away. But a lot of the core students that really wanted to forge like how it turned into mentorship and then friendship persisted. And I think for me, that was really kind of what made my time so like as long it made me stay there as long as I did throughout a lot of the bullshit yeah (laughs) and so (laughs) 
Um, and so it's a, it's a pro and a con. And I think it eventually I had to realize it was not a purpose, kind of what we went, we just talked about, um, and realized it was more of like, okay, it was an opportunity that I was doing. And now I could still do this for them, not part of the system. And I have, they reached out, you know, students have reached out for assistance and questions. And I was still offered to support them in the way that I did when I was there, just not being subjected to a lot of the nonsense, um, that I was before. So. Yeah. Retweet to all of that. If yes, there's one ma'am. thing I could add yeah. to like the persistence piece was getting a piece of advice from a mentor and he says it a lot better, but essentially none of this is yours. Like you don't own these programs. It's not your institution. And we often oh. own, we own that as yes. like my staff, my students, my office. Ooh, you don't own staffs. any of this. This yeah. is not yours. And yes. like, like Michael said earlier, not your monkeys, not your circus. Like, so the problems and issues there are not your burdens to carry. And once you start kind of detaching yourself from those things, when things go awry, when people start arguing about the names of a program, yep. you kind of just sit there and say, whatever you want, you feel more passionate about it. Let's go with your <laughs> idea. Like, yep. I'm just here to support. And, and it's, it's going to persist when you're gone. It's still yeah. going to be there. Yeah, exactly. So once they're going to put an ass in that chair, no matter what. And so it will move on without you. And it's not always yours. Like that mindset, I still do an amazing job in my work, but I don't take everything so personally. And like when people like say like, oh, that program wasn't successful. Cool. It just wasn't successful. Wasn't my program. It was a program we put on. Like that's not, it's not hitting at my core. It's not hitting my identity. Me as a human, me as my worth. Yeah. Cause I know that's how I felt when I first entered this field was only 30 students attended. Like I'm a horrible practitioner. I'm horrible. At my job, I have no yeah. skills. And it's like 30 students just attended. Like that's yeah. the fact. We don't yeah. have to qualify it with any of the other nonsense that people are feeding into. Absolutely. Like Absolutely. it's just a fact. Yeah. And, and yes. we should, and we should not be like persisting that kind of thought process either. So like not just internally, like ourselves with ourselves, but like, I know, like I was part of conversations where people are actively judging other people for like, oh, they only had 30 people come. And yep. right. And like, <laughs> and I, and I want to point that out because I think that's also important to kind of realize how we all contribute to this culture in ways, mm-hmm. right. That we're not always privy to and to really mm-hmm. challenge some of these things like, oh shit, that actually is not because it isn't their program and that isn't directly them. Like it's just a program that, what, how can we collectively now come up with ideas to make it more successful? It's just a fucking pizza party. Like, (laughs) and it's like, it's a very individualistic and capitalistic view of of like, I think about how many times I've seen folks do one-off programs. It's successful. And now it has to be an annual program. Oh my God. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. It could have just stayed there and been done. Like, and just been successful. And if we truly needed it, if students rallied behind it and said, we need this, great. But why are we, re- like, and then you're upset that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. The moon was just the line. The stars were aligned to make it happen that one time. It's that's okay. Tea. Yeah, that's tea. It's okay. <laughs> and it's truly helped with like, how I view burnout because I'm not constantly thinking, how do I do more? How do mm-hmm. I make things better? Mm-hmm. Like, how do I put so much of myself into this work as this was my job. This was my task. I did it. Now it's time to do the other tasks because we know we have 20 more to do and I'm yeah. going to do those. And that's okay that I move on instead of harping on 20 feedback sessions and emails from everybody across yeah. campus of like their opinions because everyone has an opinion. And if they feel so motivated, they can do it for me. Oh, like, yeah. And if they're not going to, then delete. Like, <laughs> yep. 
next. Uh, thank you so much, Jose. We really appreciate your perspective and sharing your time with us. We learned a lot from yes. you and I hope you. that our current professionals can really connect with what you shared. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and to share with your friends. And stay connected with us on Instagram by following at Surviving Higher Ed. Bye. Bye.